people, you are dismissed for your class. Paul, do you mind handing those out, please? Take your Bibles, if you will, and let's turn over to 1 John chapter 1. Is perfection possible? <laughs> Not in this life. Good answer. Good answer. He, he needs one. Make sure Michelle gets one because she lets me know when I don't have them. First John 1, verses 8 and 9. First John 1. Eight and nine. You would probably recall that uh, John writes to believers here. And he says that if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. His Word is not in us. John writes to the beloved believers about their advocate. Uh, he gets into that in the next chapter. Their advocate, Jesus Christ, their mediator, the one go-between, between, between God the Father who is perfectly holy and righteous and just and sinners who have placed their faith in Him. The false doctrine of perfectionism teaches that there is some point following conversion when believers' sin nature is eradicated. I, I hope that the next week to kind of uh, I, I got a chart that I'm going to show you and uh, look at uh, different views about sanctification, uh, some right and some wrong. Uh, this view about uh, sinless perfection is one of those false views, and uh, John is just one of those places we could turn to this morning to remind us. According to this verse, uh, especially in, in Paul's treatment of this subject, in uh, Philippians 3, you remember his catalog that uh, uh, I, I haven't achieved? Not in this life anyways. Perfection in this life is only a goal, not an achievement. We need to pursue it, knowing that we'll never, never attain it here on earth. Paul denied perfectionism. John the Apostle denied perfectionism by calling us, you know, the, call us to a prize that can be fully attained only in heaven. And by at Paul's own lips there in Philippians 3, ad admitting that he hadn't reached perfection. When Paul wrote to the Philippians, he'd been a, uh, a believer for near 30 years. He perhaps was the most committed Christian to have ever lived, and if after 30 years he wasn't perfect, 
None of us should claim to be either. So I, we were looking for two or three weeks in uh, our study of Galatians 5. We, we looked at uh, life not in the flesh, but life in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. Uh, in Galatians, Paul addresses this doctrine of, of sanctification, progressive sanctification, How can one be simultaneously righteous and sinful? The Latin phrase, simul lustus a peccator. Simultaneously righteous and a sinner. That is a believer. Uh, If you were to put it in... uh, psychological terms that we wouldn't necessarily go along with. Uh, uh, this, it's, it's like you've got uh, uh, Christian schizophrenia going on, uh, that, uh, that uh, you, you know that you're righteous, clothed in the perfections of Christ, and yet we sin. That's the struggle Paul unpacks for us in Romans 7. You look at one side of the gospel we're commanded to repent and believe. And how that relates to sanctification. Uh, you know, if, if we're commanded to repent and believe, and yet salvation's all of God by His sovereign grace, what about sanctification? Sanctification, the, the divine co op, God and man. Your progressive sanctification deals with Christian holiness. We would affirm that the God revealed in Scripture is infinitely righteous and holy in character. Such a God can have no fellowship, no concourse with unrighteousness in any form. Hence, those who would relate to God and be His special people must be holy in character. So I want us to take a few moments this morning in this lesson and, uh, on how the Spirit makes those who are holy in principle, positionally sanctified by grace, and practice, experientially sanctified in word and deed. I think that there's often, when, when we talk about sanctification, there's often a disconnect between the two. We, we talk about uh, sanctification like, it's, like it only relates to the life of the Christian after salvation. But how did God receive us? He made us sanctified in position to become sanctified in practice. The God who recreates sinners via the new birth. Who caused us to be born again to a living hope, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1.3. Faithfully renewing us into the image of His Son. He does so in this process of sanctification. 
This is God's means of actualizing in forgiving sinners His original creative purposes that were lost in the fall. He created man to walk uprightly. And only in salvation can they then begin to walk uprightly. This study is so that you won't think living for God is as simple as a, as a one-time single act of faith and surrender like many of us were taught at, at, at maybe a Christian camp. Uh, you, you, you went to camp and you got so excited about the things of the Lord and then you got back into the real world and were disenfranchised about the battle and ill-prepared for the battle. That, that the Christian life, that signing up for following Jesus is more of a process involving a lifelong surrender, effort, and spiritual discipline so that we might, might not get discouraged by the presence of residual sin in our heart and life. Did it not take? I thought I just repented of my sins and embraced Christ, so why am I still sinning? Let's uh, begin our journey. If you want to uh, take your Bibles and turn back to Leviticus. You say we're, going, we're, we're studying progressive sanctification from the old covenant? Yes. Let's go back to uh, uh, some of the vocabulary used in Scripture about holiness. That word holy means to be set apart for God. In uh, Leviticus 20, I want you to notice, as recorded by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, chapter 20, think about in in big pictures, uh, in uh, in, uh, general points, what's the purpose of Leviticus? Leviticus is all about how a sinful people can worship a holy God. This is a book about sanctification, the book of Leviticus is. The bulk of the chapters, chapters 18 to the end, all sets out and delineates different facets of sanctification, being set apart for God. And in Leviticus 20, this theme is reiterated. Verse, uh, let's start in verse 22. God sets before those who were called by His name, verse 22, that they were to keep all my statutes, all my ordinances, and do them so that the land to which I'm bringing you to live will not spew you out. Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nations which I will drive out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I have abhorred them. Uh, The operative word in verse number 23 is customs. You you go back to uh, why is it that God forbade His people from having uh, tattoos and piercings? It was a sign of His covenant people that they were not... They were to look different and act different from all the nations around them that looked and acted this way. The customs of the nations. 
Verse 24, hence I have said to you, you're to possess their land. I myself will give it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the people. You are set apart from the people. All the nations around them, they were set apart from. Verse 25, you are therefore to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean. It's not that God was, was trying to be difficult and just put all these rules and regulations on people to be a stick in the mud of no, 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 like maybe some of your kids think that's all the, the only word you know. You know, to put His people in context of covenant relationship, why He says there's only certain things you can eat and certain things you cannot eat is to set you apart, to make a distinction, that you be a unique people. You, you, you make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, between the unclean bird and the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by animal, by bird, or by anything that creeps on the ground, which I have separated for you as unclean. Thus, you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Separated you from the peoples. You are to make a distinction. I have separated for you as unclean. You must be holy people to me. I, Yahweh, am holy. I have separated you from the peoples to be mine. And you might say, well, what are those weird, weird words in uh, uh, parentheses here? Those are the uh, Hebrew reiteration of this Kadosh, this holiness, this theme of holiness going down through the text that God set apart a people for the praise of His own name. It should be no surprise that Yahweh God is the pure essence of this reference and the source of this holiness. Be holy, why? Because I am holy. You are to picture me as ambassadors Some of the uh, words in the Old Testament, like Badar, shares a common emphasis on separation. The significance of the Old Testament saint, one who walks uprightly, one who, according to Psalm 1, walks in the way that God blesses, he is to be holy. You know, how, how about setting apart Aaron to the consecration of holy things in 1 Chronicles 23, 13? Or the Levites? Or Israel to be God's heritage? Many other passages we could look at. You look at the requirements of, of holiness. Uh, for those of you that are going through the uh, Bible readings that we're doing as, as a church, we saw one of the few righteous kings of Israel last night in family devotions, Asa, you know, that tore down the Asherah, the false places of worship, set apart. So, God demands of His people holiness, holiness. The New Testament 
uses this same word that is translated in English as holy. The Greek hagios. First of the holiness of God, the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is indeed God, unlike the Jehovah Witnesses that came to my door yesterday. Sorry, He wasn't just a great teacher. He was the expression of the very essence of God in His holiness, and He displayed that in a perfect life of holiness as He walked in the flesh. This word holy refers to Christ's body, refers to the church, and beloved for us, it it refers to the Christian life. Holiness is to be characteristic of God's people, whether it be Old Testament saint or a New Testament saint. God's standards have not changed because they stem from His own character, His own holiness. So we see in much of the vocabulary, this holiness vocabulary used Old and and New Testament. Think with me for just a moment about the phases of sanctification or the stages. Before you can ever be holy as I am holy, as God says, be a holy people, you must first be born again of the Spirit of God. This is, this is positional before it ever is progressive. Think back to our study in Galatians 5. We saw two lists. There is those that only practice works of the flesh, right? And then fruit of the Spirit. The only people that can produce fruit of the Spirit are those whom the Spirit of God resides in. They must be holy in position before they can work out. Otherwise, it's just behavior modification. It's just morality which damns people to hell. So, in the stages, it is positional before it becomes progressive. Positional sanctification, being declared by God as righteous through the perfections of His own Son that you placed your faith in. That's what got the race started. Then it continues the work. One of those references, you remember memorizing Philippians 1.6? What's that say? Philippians 1.6? I see some of you thinking. Cogs in your wheel, the steam coming out. Philippians 1.6. Well, since you forgot it, turn over there. Philippians 1.6. Here's Paul's confidence that he shares with the beloved. I'm confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will what? Perfect. I thought we said that, that uh, there's no such thing as perfectionism. No, there is not. But that's the goal, though we won't achieve it until our glorified state. I'm confident, Paul says, that he who began a work of making people holy will continue the work of holiness all the way, all the way until the day of Christ Jesus. Believers 
are no longer. At the moment that you confess Jesus as Lord, a believer is no longer designated as a sinner, but as a saint. Righteousness becomes God's people. They are sanctified. They are now holy ones. You say, well, I see a lot of holes in people's holiness. Yes, you do. And it starts with me and you. Thus, so, so if, if we're no longer identified as sinners, as lawbreakers, but designated as saints, sainthood or sanctification is not an attainment. It's the state into which God in grace calls sinful men and in which they begin their courses as Christians. Now, I've been known to peruse the internet once in a while throughout the day. And as I was trying to learn some theology about sanctification on the internet, I was, uh, uh, as I was looking at sainthood, I was, uh, Google presented me with the Mother Teresa site, the Path of Love homepage, attaining sainthood. And we could use several examples, and I'm not going to uh, uh, delve into uh, this uh, worship of uh, relics and, and, and people apart from, from God, but sainthood is not like some religions teach it is. Sainthood is only as it's recorded in Scripture, bestowed by God Himself on those who have been set apart, who have turned from their sin and embraced Christ through faith. Let me fill in a couple of thoughts. If you're in Philippians 1, being reminded of Philippians 1.6, go over to Colossians 1, uh, Colossians 3, excuse me. Colossians 3 and let's try to connect some of the dots of us being sanctified in position before we are ever sanctified in progress and in practice. Colossians 3 and verse number 12, Paul's talking about putting on the new self created in Christ Jesus, and he identifies them He says, as those who have been chosen by God. I tell you what, if that does not blow a circuit breaker in your mind and drive you to worship, that when God intervened in your life as a transgressor of His law, and He gave you eyes of faith to believe His saving gospel and designates you as the chosen of God, chosen by God. What a marvelous reality. He chose you because He chose you. He set His love upon you because He set His love upon you. That gives us no room for boasting and braggart of achievement, but only overflowing in gratitude that He chose us from before the foundation of the world. He set His love upon us. He elected us. Those who are saints... Those who are followers of Jesus are the chosen of God. That is their designation. That's our identity. And we revel in our identity to be chosen of God 
Notice how you've got a comma after that. A clarification. Who are the chosen of God? The holy and the beloved. They are holy in position before they ever holy in practice. Therefore, we got all these commands in Scripture commanding us to holiness in practice. You know, because we're holy in position, Paul can say to those indwelt by the Spirit of God, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against it. This is only possible for blood-bought, spirit-indwelt believers who are in Christ. Those that are chosen by God who are holy in position. Because believers belong to God, because they have been sanctified, they are thus called upon to experience sanctification and to shun uncleanness. You notice that that has to be our starting point. We don't just go to all of the uh, imperative commands. We're going to, uh, as we finish Second Peter this morning in the morning worship, we're going we're gonna to look at uh, four imperatives that Peter gives the beloved saints. But before we ever do by command, we must spend time on the indicatives, our reality of being in Christ, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be one who is set apart, one is, who is designated as a saint by God, one who by nature is holy. So I want you to fasten down that, that thought that uh, in, in, in these stages it's positional. There must be a born-again experience before you can ever be in practice holy. Otherwise, it's just external change. It's like Jesus proclaimed of the Pharisees, whitewashed sepulchers. You look great on the outside, but inside, dead men's bones. Then we can address its progressive nature. Only after we underscore in our theology and our understanding that it's positional, then it's progressive. And we could look at so many passages Turn back from, from Colossians where we were just at to Hebrews for just a moment. Oh, where were we going? Hebrews? Wrong way. <laughs> Go ahead in your Bibles. Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. In verse number 11, Hebrews 2.11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers. If we were to have time, uh, we'd, uh, we'd uh, dialogue a little bit further about, uh, so who lives your Christian life? You or God? What's the right answer? Uh-huh. It's a divine co-op. Because God saved me, He sanctifies me and thus commands me to be sanctified. 
Jot down Hebrews 10, 14, if you would. For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. You know, this is the continue, progressive sanctification is the continuing work of God in the life of the believer. We are commanded to be sanctified. We are commanded, Philippians 2, work out your salvation. For it's God which works in you to will and to do of His own good pleasure. That divine co-op. So, when, when we look at, so, so who does the sanctifying? Well, we can take the credit for lack of holiness in our lives and for every, every sin. And every, every step towards Christ-likeness, He gets all the praise and glory because it's His doing in our lives. You cannot disconnect His sovereign working from our responsibility given by command. It's a process by which our moral condition is brought into conformity with our legal status before God. Going back to it being positional before it's ever progressive. If God designates a saint as a holy one, then we're working that out. We're, we're being more consistent with who we are in Christ. It's a process of being progressively set apart from sin toward a moral conformity to the image of Christ. That's why the writers of Scripture can be just in their commands towards lives of holiness. I thought God made me holy. Yes, He did. And it's out of that that you're able to become in practice more holy. There is this need to advance toward maturity. Advance toward maturity. It was Watson who said, it's, an absur- it's absurd to imagine that God should justify a people and not sanctify them. That He should justify a people whom He could not glorify. You know, remember what we were mentioning from Leviticus. In, in the Old Testament, God announced that Israel must mirror their, his, his holy character. We'd spend some more time looking at Leviticus 11.44 and chapter 19 and chapter 20 that we were in. Mirror my conduct so that when, when Peter picks up on this Old Testament image, be holy as I am holy. In Leviticus, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves. Be holy because I am holy. Although formerly holy because they were set apart to be God's peculiar people, Israel must become morally and spiritually holy. They were to do this negatively by avoiding the sinful practices of their pagan neighbors. And they were to do this, uh, this separation unto holiness positively by obeying God's commands. In the quest for uprightness of life, they must know that the Lord is the sanctifier who makes His people 
sanctified. So when we think about this advance in holiness, think about the Spirit's work being gradual, being progressive rather than sudden and instantaneous. If you're still waiting for the holy zap, it's not going to come. You're always going to be in this process, this gradual, progressive, sanctifying walk. That's why Peter would end his, epistle, his second epistle, grow in grace and knowledge. Grow in grace and knowledge. Constant growth. Where Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 4.16 that we are being renewed day by day. You wake up in the morning, okay, how can I discipline myself unto godliness today. Well, I'll take out my Bible, spend some time with the Lord in prayer. Lord's Day, go meet with God's people, sit under the preaching and teaching of the, of the Word of God. So in our, in our progress, yes, we emphasize the commands in Scriptures to progress in holiness, but it all stems from our position before it becomes progressive. It was uh, Elton Ladd who did a good job correcting a common misconception about sanctification when he said, he said, a widely prevailing view is that justification is the term designated in the beginning of the Christian life while sanctification designates development of that life through the internal work of the Spirit. This, however, is an oversimplification of the New Testament teaching, and it obscures an important truth. In fact, the idea of sanctification is soteriological. It is saving, in other words, soteriological before it is ever a moral concept. So we must always follow the order of drawing the imperatives, the commands of Scripture from the indicatives of who we are in Christ. You might say, well, Pastor Parker, why are you making such a big deal? We understand this sanctification thing. We've been, we've been studying it. If, if it was that clear and that understood, we wouldn't have this, these constant debacles uh, in, in Christianity. I don't know if you've kept abreast of some of, the, uh, uh, some of what's going on in evangelicalism on views of sanctification, views towards holiness. Uh, if I were to mention some names, there'd be uh, some of the interchanges between Carl Truman and, and uh, Tulian Chavidian and uh, D.A. Carson and Tim Keller. Well, is it, uh, what part does the law play in sanctification? God's revealed law, the law of Christ. And uh, if it was as simple as what we might tend to, to make it, there wouldn't be all kinds of questions and, and, and dialogues. Yes, the gospel is sheer good tidings. Not just a demand, but a promise. Not duty, but a gift, as Bavink puts it. But we must make sure that our, our progress is connected to the position. I was reading through... Uh, Calvin's institutes the Christian religion in regards to this uh, this connection of a of a uh, the sanctif- 
sanctification and uh, justification being extricably linked. John says Christ justifies no man without also sanctifying him. These blessings are conjoined by a perpetual and inseparable tie. Those whom he enlightens by his wisdom, he redeems. Whom he redeems, he justifies. Whom he justifies, he sanctifies. But as the question relates only to justification and sanctification, to them let us confine ourselves. Though we might distinguish between them, they are both inseparably comprehended in Christ. Would you then obtain justification in Christ? You must previously possess Christ. But you cannot possess Him without being made a partaker of His sanctification, for Christ cannot be divided. Since the Lord, therefore, does not grant us the enjoyment of these blessings without bestowing Himself, He bestows both at once. Boast your justification and sanctification. Both at once. Never one without the other. Thus it appears how true it is that we are justified not without and yet not by works since in the participation of Christ by which we are justified is contained no less sanctification than justification. So our, our ability to be holy in practice is empowered by our position in Christ. Let me bring one more theologian to the table, B.B. Warfield. As he was uh, addressing the link between us being justified in Christ and being sanctified. As it uh, is related to Romans 6. He said it was written for no other purpose than to assert and demonstrate that justification and sanctification are indissolubly bound together. Before I continue in this quote by Warfield, think, think, Paul's saying in Romans 6, shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? God forbid. How shall we live any longer therein? And in the next chapter is where he lives in this tension, this struggle of working out in our sanctification, our Christian life, what we are in position before Christ knowing that what we want to do, we don't do, and that which we don't want to do, we end up practicing. How do we reconcile this? He says we cannot have one without having the other. That to use its own figurative language, dying with Christ and living with Christ are integral elements in one disintegratable salvation. You know, if you are crucified with Christ, you are living in Christ together. To rest these two things apart and make separable gifts of grace of them evinces a confusion in the concept of Christ's salvation, which is nothing less than pretentious. It forces from us the astonished cry, is Christ divided? And it compels us to point afresh to the primary truth that we do not obtain the benefits of Christ apart from, but only in and with his person, and that when we have him, we have all, unquote. So that the one who commands us to be holy as he is holy is the one that dwells within and empowers us because of our position in Christ to be in practice more consistently what he declares us to be, his own beloved son. 
Make sense? Clarification? Questions? Queries? Gripes or queries? Pray with me. Father, you have set the bar with your own character that your people are to emulate your holiness. Lord, as you look at evangelicalism in our contemporary day, as we look at much of what goes on in the name of Christianity and churches, and even as we glimpse with reality our own lives and the holes in our holiness, we find ourselves with Paul in the struggle never living up, and yet we are comforted by the gospel that you don't abandon your work of sanctifying us, neither are we. You command us to discipline ourselves unto godliness, to be a holy people. Give us energy and vigor in the battle. Open our eyes to your truth in Scripture. Help us to not be lazy in this battle, but to put together a sanctification routine to avail ourselves of gospel graces to be more like you. We pray that you would make us more holy in our practice, separated from the world unto God, so that any progress that's made in our holiness all abounds to the praise and glory of the one who dwells within, your spirit. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for empowering us through your word and your spirit to do that which you require of your people. Progress us into Christ-likeness for the glory and the fame of your own great name. We ask this in his matchless name. Amen.